Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today, love is in the air. Later this hour, Caleb Rainey has a new spoken word album out that is full of love poems. I will talk with him. But first, if your idea of a romance novel involves heaving bosoms and muscly men with flowing hair and shirts open to their navel, it may be time to take another look. There has been an evolution in the world of romance, and many recent romance novels are not just smart and sexy, they've also become much more inclusive with protagonists and authors who represent many different identities and backgrounds. To introduce us to this modern world of romance and to make some recommendations, we have turned to Chloe Angel and Jessica Pride. Chloe Angel is an author and an editor with Vice News. Her first romance novel comes out in May. It's called Pa de Don't and takes place in the world of ballet. Hello, Chloe. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Jessica Pride is the editor of Black Love Matters. She's a librarian, writer, and podcaster. Hello, Jessica. Hello. Thank you both so much for being here. And first, I want to get a little background. Chloe, when did you first start reading romance? I had read a couple of romance novels here and there, but I became a romance reader with two capital R's in 2017. And my entrance to being a romance reader was uh, from an author named Alyssa Cole, who wrote a wonderful contemporary royals uh, series called The Reluctant Royals. I read her first book in that series called A Princess in Theory and was totally smitten, totally hooked. And then I did what a lot of romance readers do when they find an author that they love, I immediately consumed every single romance that she'd ever written. What do you think changed? Why did you, at that moment, suddenly embrace romance? I think 2017 was a pretty scary time for a lot of people. And I was working in breaking news at the time. And my days were filled with bad news. And I wanted some good news. I wanted to feel good when I got home from work. And, you know, romance novels offer you three really valuable things. They offer you wish fulfillment, comfort, and predictability. Jessica, how about you? When did you first start reading romance? Well, if you really want to go back, I picked up several of my mother's Jude Devereaux novels when I was 11 or 12 and spent my middle school and early high school years reading that author's entire backlist. (laughs) I took a few breaks, you know, to read other things like Anne Rice and Pride and Prejudice fan fiction, and then sort of got back into the romance world in the early 2010s when I was working as a high school librarian and similarly just needed something to bring me a little more joy every day. So you can give us a deeper perspective How do you think you have seen romance novels evolve over the last decade or so? Oh, there's there's been a lot. You know, there's not just the fact that the majority of the books that I read in the earliest years were set in medieval times with, you know, lords of the manor and carrying women over their shoulders and all of that kind of thing. The really like 
capital O, capital S, old school romance. So the a broadening of, of settings, a broadening of economic statuses, a broadening of personalities, shall we say? There were a lot of uh, alpha heroes in my earliest readings. And now we get to read um, about more interesting and uh, complex characters. Yeah, now we're in the era of the cinnamon roll. The cinnamon Love roll. it. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, the cinnamon roll is your sweet, gooey puppy dog of a of a man main character (laughs) and you know that it's like he's not a marauding knight or a ruthless billionaire ceo and not to say that there aren't plenty of those around these days but yeah (laughs) it does feel like we're in we're in a bit of a cinnamon roll era because one thing that's really great about romance novels is that, that they're very responsive to changing gender norms and, and that doesn't just apply to the women in the book, that applies to the men as well. And so I think as our ideas and preferences and expectations of masculinity change out in the real world, you also see them start to shift in romance novels. Well, and I recently have been reading romance novels because I have needed an escape recently. And I had tried some romance years ago, was not very taken with it at all. My foster sister read Harlequin romances like they were candy and and I was like ah not for me and and I have found that with the modern romance novels that I have dipped into I'm like oh these are people that I recognize oh these are people I would be interested in these are people I have things in common with and that was not something that I felt with those past books and I mean I want to talk about how how much more diverse romance is now but before we do that Jessica I, I think that there's a misnomer that romance has been entirely lacking in diversity for a long time. And you wrote uh, a wonderful essay about the fact that there have been Black romance novels for a long time. Give me a little bit of perspective. Absolutely. So um, if you are in the mainstream and you're only seeing a certain group of romance novels on the bookshelf in a bookstore or a grocery store, anything, you might think that there is only one particular kind of romance novel in existence. And even with the advent of social media, there are still new readers and even people who've been around for a little while who are like, where are the Black romance? Where are the Black stories that are about happiness instead of trauma? But, um, Black authors have been writing romance for longer than I've been alive. Um, And, you know, we can talk about the BJs. Beverly Jenkins and Brenda Jackson are the two that most people might recognize, at least their names, even if they haven't read their books. And I I had the great honor of getting to interview Beverly Jenkins when I lived in Michigan. I read her Uh, novel Indigo, which which was a complete joy. So yes, absolutely. Such a such a great novel. Um, And they've been writing since the 90s. And there are other authors, um, Sandra Kitt, Shirley Halestock, who have been writing since then, or from even before in the 80s and the 70s. And Alan Shockley was writing uh, queer women in the 70s. And uh, these are names that don't come up in the conversation very much. 
um, in part because sometimes their books just sort of disappeared from the rhetoric and people think if it's not in my face, it doesn't exist. And because, you know, some people think that with the advent of trade paperback, that's when more Black romance authors were publishing or with the advent of independent publishing. And of course, trade paperback and independent publishing have made so many more voices possible to be to be published. Um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't there before. That just means that they are now harder to find because they might be out of print um, or they were just sort of lost in the shuffle. Well, and of course, our our digital access to information makes it possible now to to really look at a broader scope of who's writing romance and and what romance novels are out there. But if you look right now, you see even just the variety of names of authors that tell me that, you know, we've got Latinx authors, we've got just people from all different backgrounds who are writing romance novels, Asian authors, and and also often incorporating their own unique identity or their cultural background into those mm-hmm. stories. Chloe, give me your perspective. Well, something I'm continually surprised by, even though I learn it over and over again, is the sheer scale of this genre. Mm-hmm. Um, there really is something for everyone because there are so many, so many different kinds of people writing and so many different kinds of stories getting written. And I you know, sometimes joke with people, like, if you want a romance novel that's about lesbian werewolves in space, like, that exists. We can (laughs) find that for you. This genre is huge and it is diverse. It has been diverse for a long time. The question to me is, who gets funded? And, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. diversity is always a question of power, right? Who gets the resources? Who gets the attention? Who gets the big marketing campaigns? Whose books get optioned to become Netflix series? I mean, you know, it's a it's a question of who gets to wield pa- the power in that conversation that, that Jessica is talking about. And so, yes, you know, those authors have always been here. The question is, do they get to stick around? Do they get the attention and the mm-hmm. frankly the money, the resources thrown at them that they deserve? We have a break coming up here in just a moment, but as as we approach it, I would like each of you to tell me what you think makes for a good romance novel and not good generally. What makes it good for you, Jessica? The characters, the uh, like the elements of the story. I love tropes <laughs> like I all romances have tropes, but I love seeing well brought out tropes, but primarily I want to get into somebody's head and follow them through the story of them falling in love with someone um, and hopefully like becoming a better person no matter what that might be. Chloe? I want characters who make psychological sense, Mm -hmm. who make decisions that real adult humans would make in the real world. Um, this is why I have such a problem with a lot of fake dating romances, because I don't believe that's something a lot of real adult humans do in the real world. And so for me, for me to get on board with one of those, it's got to be really well executed. Um, I like, uh, romantic comedies that are actually funny, you know, two Mm. characters who actually make me and each other laugh. And 
since we are like 10 minutes into this conversation and we haven't talked about it, I like really hot sex. I like really hot consensual sex because that is what a lot of romance readers come to these books for. It's not the mm. only thing that they're there for, but it is, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It should be part of what people, it should be fine to enjoy that part of the, of the book. And I certainly do. All right. We will talk more about that after the break. More sex to come. All right. Uh, Chloe Angel is with me, an author. She's also an editor with Vice News. And uh, her first romance novel comes out in May. It's called Pod de Don't. And Jessica Pride is here, editor of Black Love Matters, a librarian, writer, and podcaster. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, I will talk with poet and spoken word artist Caleb Rainey. He has just released a new album that is full of love poems. But right now, we are talking about romance novels. Romance novels have evolved significantly over the decades, and right now there is a real explosion of smart funny romance novels that are truly representative of the diversity of human beings on the face of the earth. With me right now is Jessica Pride. She is the editor of Black Love Matters, a librarian, writer, and podcaster. Chloe Angel is also here. Her first romance novel comes out in May. It's called Pas de Don't and takes place in the world of ballet. And we do need to talk about sex. We were just starting to do that before <laughs> before the break. You know, there are romance novels where the sex is largely implied. There are romance novels where the authors are writing relatively graphic or at least detailed sex scenes. And I, I will say, Chloe, you brought this up just a moment ago, that I feel like the kind of sex that, that we are experiencing in these modern romance novels is very different from what was represented in those Harlequin romances that my sister loved to read so much. We are seeing consensual sex where consent is part of the hotness of, of what's going on. I mean, tell me, tell me how you think that part of romance novels has evolved. Like I said, one of the great things about this genre is that it's really responsive to social mores and norms as they change out in the real world. And so as there has been more of an emphasis on women's pleasure, as there's been more of an emphasis on consent and methods of birth control in the out in the real world, that all shows up in romance novels. And, you know, one of the most masterful things I think a romance novelist can do when they're writing a sex scene is a consent check that makes sense for the characters, that moves the scene along, and that, as you say, makes the sex hotter. And uh, that's not the kind of thing that you would necessarily have found in a book 10 years ago, 15 years ago, certainly not a, a generation ago. And I think it is an, it's a powerful way to model for a reader what they can and should expect in a relationship. And that's true beyond the sex as well. One of the things that 
this genre does is imagine a world where people, a lot of them women, get everything they want and everything they deserve. So they deserve to be treated with respect and in the bedroom and outside of it. Jessica, you want to add anything to that? That was all so important. Yes. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the enthusiastic consent is something that we talk about a lot because it's not just, oh, yeah, sure. It's very much yes. Absolutely yes. And the way that that can be done in a romance novel can be something that is only touched upon or every single step broken down. And each author who pulls out this whole scene is, you know, a master of being able to (laughs) just make you live in the scene. Like you are there and it could be just something that is uh, full of euphemisms and even just sort of one person's feelings. You don't have to be in both characters head at the same time or all three or however many people are having sex at that moment <laughs> um. and to you know to your earlier point about the breadth of the, of the genre if reading really explicit sex scenes is not for you there are like there's such a huge range of of heat levels mm-hmm. um you know there are there are romance novels where the two characters barely t- contemporary romance novels where the two characters barely touch and then there are romance novels that are like they're like eight sex scenes in a trench coat and <laughs> it's still it's still a romance novel but plot might not be the main attraction <laughs> well it's one of uh, something you said chloe earlier about how uh, in these romance novels where consent is a part of the sex scenes where these relationships are aspirational it does make me think of the number of women that i have in my life who have confessed to me that Romance novels are where they learned about sex because of inadequate sex education in their school or, you know, lack of birds and bees conversations with their parents where they really didn't know anything about sex, learned it from romance novels. And that used to kind of give me the shivers thinking about some of the romance novels that were out there. It wouldn't bother me nearly as much to hear somebody say that now because I feel like people are well represented and a lot of these relationships are aspirational, healthy relationships maybe that's not such a bad thing now mm-hmm. no I, I think I think that's a great thing I mean to be clear I also think the state should fully fund comprehensive sex education <laughs> I as a romance novelist I do not accept the responsibility of educating the people <laughs> that's not my job <laughs> and as a mom I'll say that it is our responsibility to have conversations yeah, with our kids well. not yeah. interested in being a replacement <laughs> <laughs> So I, I want to talk about specific books that that you guys really love. And, you know, they can be examples of specific kinds of romance novels that, that you love. Send us in a few different directions as readers. Chloe, why don't I I'll let you go first? Tell me about one of the books that you think people should read. Well, first, I'll say that asking me to pick just a handful is like asking me to pick my favorite child or my favorite Spice Girl. <laughs> um, it's not fair. Um, but... There are a couple that I that I recommend. I'll break them into two categories. One I recommend to the romance curious, and the other to people who are maybe already dipped their toe in the genre and and want to want to read more. So the romance curious, I recommend a princess in theory, which I mentioned earlier as my you started, gateway. Right? It's my gateway book. It's by Alyssa Cole. It is 
the Princess Diaries meets Black Panther is the best way I can describe that particular combination. And I'm going to say the words that will make a romance reader just thrill, which is it's the first in a series. <laughs> so if you like it, you can just keep on reading. The Honestly, the best discovery you can make when you when you read a book that you love in romance is the discovery that, oh, God, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but that makes me want to ask another question. Mm-hmm. Because, so, again, I've been dipping my toe into the romance world, and I'll read a book that I really love and then read a second one by that author. And if it's exactly the same as the first one, then I'm not interested in reading anymore. I mean, some some authors do get too formulaic, but with a series, it seems to me that you you want to have the same feel, but you you want to be surprised a little bit, right, Chloe? Yeah, and Jessica mentioned tropes earlier, and I think some of the strongest series, each book represents a different trope. So you might have enemies to lovers as as the first one. You might have fake dating as the second one. I'll still read it if it's good. Um, <laughs> you might have, you know, friends to lovers as the third one. And, and then there are some authors who just do one particular setup really, really well, and I'll read it from them over and over and over again. And one of those authors is uh, Sherry Thomas, who mm. does what I would call marriage in trouble or second chance romance better than I think anyone living or breathing on the planet. Um, the degree of difficulty of taking two people who have really wounded each other, who have really hurt each other, and either getting the uh, the wounding party to grovel so effectively that you actually want him to have a second chance, or getting them both to grow and change and understand themselves and each other over the course of the book to the point where they can stop hurting each other. It's like, this is Simone Biles level difficulty. And Sherry Thomas is the only person I've read who does it as well as she does. Nice. Um, And the book I would recommend in that is uh, Private Arrangements. Private Arrangements. Mm -hmm. All right, Jessica, give me a book. Okay. Um, Since we have already talked about Beverly Jenkins' Indigo, I am going to... uh, repeat that that is an amazing book and move on because she has a lot of books that you can check out. I recommend just taking your time, pacing yourself. You will always have a Beverly Jenkins book to read. Um, I want to go in a pretty different direction and talk about The Romantic Agenda by Claire Kahn. Um, It's a contemporary romance novel and Joy, the main character, is asexual. Um, So if you are looking for a romance novel that is more about the romantic relationship than the sex, um, this this one would be one that you might find interesting. Um, She is in love with her best friend who is also asexual. So she's not just like the only ace person on the page. Um, And sometimes in books, you, it seems like if it's a very um, sort of minority marginalization, they don't know anybody else like them and they don't even know the words. So in this one, uh, it does get a little bit preachy and informative about asexuality, but it it feeds the plot well. So, um, and it is a little bit of fake dating, but it makes sense in the in the setup of the story. Um, so 
I would definitely recommend that one. It's her first adult romance. Um, so she has a couple like older YA um, romances, but this is her first adult one and I'm looking forward to more. Sadly, it is not the first in a series um, or if it is the rest of it, the rest of the series doesn't exist yet. <laughs> All right. Maybe it's coming. The Romantic Agenda. What was the author's name again? Claire Kahn. K-A-N-N. All right. Chloe, what's next on your list? Uh, before, I, before I continue, I do want to be clear. I'm in the minority in not liking fake dating. It's one of the most popular tropes. People love it. And like, more, more power to them. It's just... I'm, it's, right. it's I don't just know anybody thing. who's done it in real life. It's just a thing that I have. Um, <laughs> the, so the next two that I'm going to recommend are like maybe platonic ideals of contemporary romance, and I recommend them all the time. The first one is Luck of the Draw by Kate Claiborne. Um, I said earlier that I like characters that make psychological sense, uh, that uh, make decisions that real adults would make in real life. This is a fake dating romance where two characters who make psychological sense make choices that adults would make in real life. And it is, you know, Charity, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, that Jess was describing some experiences that didn't sound aspirational, that sounded really sort of isolating and bleak. I think the best romance novels do that and they manage to mine joy and happiness and resolution out of sometimes very dire circumstances with really high stakes. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely what this book does. And, um, you know, it's, it's two people who have uh, one person who has really good reason to be an enemy of the other person. And they sort of throw their lot in together. And, you know, this is, it's a book about grief and, uh, like reconciling yourself to the you know to to what your childhood actually was. I mean, it's a it's a very heavy book, and it's just done absolutely beautifully. I there are a couple of romance authors where I would I would read a shopping list if they wrote it, and Kate Claiborne <laughs> is one of them. Um, Kate Claiborne, I will read your shopping lists. Um, and the final one is Fire Season by Katie Casey. Uh, it's a baseball romance. It's a gay baseball romance. It is the second in a series. I know nothing and care nothing for baseball. Katie Casey is the only person who can make me care about baseball. And this book is the most masterful slow burn uh, that I have ever read. It's the sexual tension is so intense. <laughs> the yearning is so intense and it's just a beautifully done book. Every book, all the books in the series are just gorgeously, gorgeously done. All right, that one's Fire Season by yes. Katie Casey. And yes. the first one that you were talking about there, Luck of the Draw by Kate Claiborne. And Claiborne. all right, Jessica, what, what else is on your list? Unwritten Rules was on my list. I'll just check that one out. That is Katie Casey's first book. Um, and unlike the other books in that series, it is a first person, or not first person single person uh, point of view book. And I love that one because you just live in that character's head 
for 300 pages and it's amazing. But um, so yes, I agree with fire season as well. Um, but Katie Casey uh, fan club over here. <laughs> Katie Casey fan club over here. Um, as for another uh, recommendation that is kind of outside of, of the norm, I'm going to go with the Duke who didn't by Courtney Milan. It is a historical romance uh, um, between two characters of Chinese descent living in England in the 1800s. So like, that's just like, oh, tell me more. And this one, it's kind of a romp, I guess you would call it. You have uh, Chloe, actually, is the main character's name. She loves lists, and she's trying to perfect a sauce for revenge reasons. And, <laughs> and she is planning to premiere said sauce at this annual games event that their town has. Um, and the Duke who didn't is... Jeremy, the other main character, who shows up to sort of win Chloe back after a split earlier. It's loosely based on a reimagining of inspired by uh, Jane Austen's persuasion. So like there's the there's that whole like we were almost together and then something happened and you split and ghosted me. Why a are terrible you terrible misunderstanding? Now? Perfect. Well, and also, you know, to to our, the earlier discussion about like really serious issues, the revenge reasons are she wants revenge because of like racism and colonialism mm-hmm. and like cultural appropriation. Like that's the she's she's seeking revenge because that was inflicted on her family, and she mm-hmm. and re- revenge reasons seems legit. There. <laughs> All right, The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan. And we are almost out of time. We will put all of these titles up on our website. And so, Jessica, if you had to give somebody one reason to dip their toe into the romance waters, what would you say? There is a romance for everyone. And romance, reading romance is a contractual agreement with a romance author that you are going to enjoy yourself and come out on the other side happy. And if there was no other reason to pick up a romance novel, I think that would probably be the first thing to inspire you to do so. It's a guarantee we just can't get in probably any other part of life right now. Jessica Pride, thank you so much. Thank you. And Chloe Angel, thank you. Thank you. And be sure to come back when your book comes out. I will. Chloe Angel is an author. Her first romance novel comes out in May. It's called Pod the Don't and takes place in the world of ballet. Jessica Pride is the editor of Black Love Matters, a librarian, writer, and podcaster. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Poets have been writing about love for centuries, but every love story is new. Caleb Rainey, who performs as the Negro artist, is a poet and spoken word performer. He is best known for his work that focuses on race and social justice. But right now, he's focusing on love. He launches his new tour this week. It's called The Soft Stuff Tour. And he'll be performing in Des Moines on February 21st and Iowa City on February 23rd. His new spoken word album, Heart Notes Live, featuring the music of Wave Cage, drops tomorrow, appropriately on Valentine's Day. And we're going to get a little taste of that album with the poem Tattoos and Sex Shops. We are today and always attempting to make something permanent out of pain and pleasure. When you got the sun tattooed on your hand, you smiled at the thought of holding such light. I wondered if you realized that's the same smile I have when my fingers find yours. I traced truth and love across my wrists to insist that You taught me the two things I have in this life. And yes, truth hurt more than love, but I extend both to you. All right, we're doing a little teasing today because I know you want to know where that goes. But Caleb Rainey is here with me now. Hello, Caleb. Hi. It is wonderful to have you here. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) So I want to talk about writing love poems because, uh, you know, a lot of poets do this. Mm -hmm. In a lot of your work, all kinds of work, you make yourself very vulnerable, sharing personal experiences. But your love poetry feels particularly (laughs) vulnerable Mm -hmm. to me. Tell me about how you think about that when you're writing this poetry. I mean, you're you're digging super deep and you're revealing a lot. Yeah. Um, As you know, like I teach high school students often. And one of the things that I, I often tell them is like there's power in specificity. Right. And so if I'm wanting to really connect with people and, and share my experiences, I have to be specific and I have to be real about it. I will be honest, it is hard. <laughs> I have, you know, sometimes needed uh, a, a drink or something or like something to help me go, I'm going to approach this poem and I'm going to be honest about what happened or how I feel and be really, really open. It's tough, but it feels necessary. And it feels powerful to be on the stage, share that, and someone go, yeah, I've been in love like that. Yeah. Oh, I well, felt that. I mean, it's one thing to be this vulnerable in your writing, but as a spoken word artist, I mean, I have been there in the room with you while you are making eye contact with people and telling this story, sharing mm-hmm. this deepest part of yourself. What does that feel like? It, it actually feels, it's a wild thing to say, feels human. It feels uh, real. In some ways, it's very terrifying. I mean, you've seen me like nearly cry in a poem, right? And and lose my words because I'm in that emotion and in that love so deeply. But sometimes seeing the other people is actually kind of grounding, right? Because I'm going, oh, I'm doing this because we've all felt this. We felt something like this. And that's why I'm doing this. And so it kind of grounds me even though it's terrifying, even though you can like sometimes see my hands shake or my knees like shaking, it's still 
important and it still makes me just feel more human and connected. I, I think about um, people who write love songs and sing love songs. And again, I mean, often very, very vulnerable things or, you know, tell a story that makes the the public start to do a little Google research <laughs> and try to figure out who you're talking about and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But it also feels like for uh, a musician, you get to hide behind the music mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's also, of course, now uh, not every poem you write is 100% biographical right. or autobiographical and true, but I feel like you don't have as much of a shield to hide behind. Oh, I don't. <laughs> um, I don't. And for most people who even know me even a little bit know who I'm talking about, right? Uh, and part of that specificity means that you're going to have an insight into my life and I have to be okay with that. And I will say there are times where I'm writing a poem and I go, I'm going to leave something out. Like, I do need to leave that sometimes to hold it for myself, right? To go, that's actually just my memory and I want to hold it and it be mine. But a lot of times I'm choosing to, to go, they're going to know. The yeah. people are going to know and I can't pretend like I'm hiding anything here. And okay, we're, we're going in. <laughs> so what does that do for you? You said it feels mm. necessary. Why? Ooh, uh, it, it requires me to really recognize the moments that I've had in life that have been really beautiful and or really challenging, right, or really complicated. It is this moment where I have to recognize humanity is nuanced, right? Living is complicated and hard and beautiful. And it makes me think of like the movie of Inside Out where you're like realizing that joy and sadness live together, right, often. That's what it does is it reminds me, whew, all right, we are real here. We are real. And it's messy. (laughs) A lot of us, if we talk through some of our past relationships, we learn things about ourselves. I mean, is this therapeutic too? Oh, absolutely. I like to think from a lot of the poems that I've written, I become a better version of myself by having myself reflect on who I was, why I believed that, or if I love this much, what do I do with this much love, right? And will I love that way again? Those kind of questions are questions that I'm forced to ask myself when trying to put something on the page or on the stage. And by doing so, I think the next time I'm, I'm addressing those questions, I have better answers. I know more about what my love looks like because I've written dozens of poems about what my love looks like. And it gives me a better picture. And I think it makes me a better partner or um, just generally a better person to help other people understand love. So you write a a wide variety of love poems. Some of them, you know, take us into the happiest part Mm -hmm. of a relationship. (laughs) And some of us uh, or some of them explore heartbreak. Let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of one of your poems that explores heartbreak. This is called Heart Surgery. When my five-and-a-half-year relationship ends, I ask my best friend, how do I move on? He says, you know how you reach in your closet, pull out a sweater, and there's one of her hairs on it? It's like that. You must remove the loose strands. Her hair was the first thing I noticed about her. Marching on a high school football field, the summer's heat seemed to flicker from the fire on her head. Months later, 
We'd curl up on a couch and I'd complain about how her fingers clung to my clothes like an infant grips a finger. She'd say it's a manifestation of her love. It can't get enough of me. Now, I am a surgeon. Each hair a heartstring I must sever. I must hold the scalpel with steady, honest hands. Just a little bit of heart surgery. So we talked about writing this poetry to be therapeutic, to learn about yourself. Is it also part of the healing process for you? Oh, yes. Especially the poem we just listened to, uh, Heart Surgery, was a poem that I wrote actually thinking that it would never touch a stage. I wrote it going, I, I was I was working through that that breakup and it was so gut-wrenching and, and hard and naming how, how sad I was that I lost something that felt so intertwined with my life that that I wrote it to pull a strand of hair out, right? To kind of try to move on. Eventually then I, I shared it on stage and, and others came up to me and they were like, I know exactly what that's like. Or and or that made me cry, right? Because yeah. because I know what it's like to to lose a relationship that feels so so important. Uh, so so it felt therapeutic in the way that it was for me that poem was really for me <laughs> and then eventually uh, when other people saw it, it it they it resonated with them and I thought okay I'm, I'm gonna have to but for a long time that poem sat on the shelf so to speak for years yeah. because I was not ready that was really for me and my healing first what changed do you remember what changed that made it possible for you to perform it live <laughs> the simplest statement in my head is I just felt braver. Like I felt like I had moved further away from that moment uh, that I could hold that sadness for three minutes and then still let it go instead of hold that sadness for three minutes and wallow back into it, fall back mm. into the sadness of losing that relationship. It became just a small dose of that. And I felt able to do that because I had enough healing through time to, to revisit then that moment and that poem and go, I know exactly what I was feeling there. I can pick that up and I can put it back down. And that is a thing that we have to work through, right? right. And work on. Do you remember specifically the first time you performed it? Uh, yes. The first time I performed it was actually in uh, Cedar Rapids and it was uh, for a poetry slam and it was because it was calling my name. Like the poem was saying like, this is the time to share this poem. And it had been on my mind, even though I'd been somewhat moved from that, that relationship and that breakup, it had been calling to me, right, as poems sometimes do. And I was at a poetry slam and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And uh, afterwards, I can remember Obbs is a poet who's based in, in Rock Island. And he was like, Caleb, you need to do that poem more. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the poem. And I was like, thank you. But I was crying by the end of it, right? Yeah. Like, it was still a hard thing to do. 
<laughs> I have heard uh, visual artists talk about how if they have a painting that they're working on, that there comes a point when they have to actually have it physically removed from them or they will continue to work on it. Mm -hmm. With your poetry, you are re-engaging with this poetry. I mean, you you have books, you have it written <laughs> down, but as a spoken word artist, you are re-engaging with it in this living way. Do you tinker? Do you change things? I often know yeah. um, what the most that changes is my delivery. Right. So the, the words themselves almost never change. But the delivery uh, changes based off of like that moment of feeling where sometimes a word seems more powerful than what I usually hit. Right. What my what my usual emphasis is mm -hmm. uh, like. I'm thinking, for example, there's a there's a poem, uh, Wendy the Good Little Witch and Casper the Friendly Ghost. That one changes rather often because the points that I want to hit change depending on how I'm feeling in that moment, talking about loving someone who has a really hard time loving themselves. So sometimes the most important thing for me to hit is say, for me to be able to say, I love her and for her to know that. Or for it to be, I love her, right? And like that difference sometimes feels so important. And in that performance, I'll shift. So we've talked a lot about how these are your stories and you are being very vulnerable and every love story is unique. But of course, love is universal. Mm -hmm. So I am positive because I know I've had the experience and I am positive that every audience member has experienced something that, that resonates with one of your poems. What do audience members, what do people tell you about your stories? Because these are, <laughs> these are your <laughs> stories, but then they belong to us too. Yes. They, uh, it, that's, a, that's a really funny question because that is uh, something I, when I do poems about race, I'm very prepared for those conversations afterwards. The, the poems about love, I'm almost never prepared for because they're so intimate. And like someone will come down and, and, and tell me, oh, my gosh, like my partner did this. And I'd be like, oh, I like what? I wow, didn't, you need, didn't to, need to tell no, me that. Mm -mm, right. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Or like or we. But they needed this. to tell you that. And they did. And I'm actually really happy that I got to be the person to, to receive that because I know the power of telling. Right. Right. I know the power of sharing and how powerful that is for the person doing the sharing. So I receive that. and I'm like, OK. And sometimes I have to remind myself, like, Caleb, you don't have to do anything with that info. Like you don't need to like really you were there to listen and just take that in because it'd be like, oh, we can talk about, you know, tattoos and sex shops and they might be like yeah me and my partner and I'll be like oh, okay <laughs> cool All right, thank you for that um, but also then the heartbreak and being like I don't think anyone's ever told like my story of my heartbreak before or loving someone or on the other end I know that I've been loved that way and I didn't receive it then but it's really powerful to hear it now uh, for example with that poem of Wendy and the Good Little Witch it was like I've had uh, people come up to me and go, I knew my partner loved me, but I just I have always dealt with self-esteem and not been able to accept love. It's really powerful to hear someone still profess love for someone who has a hard time hearing it. Things like that come up. It It is a level of intimacy that is rare, I yeah. think, especially in public spaces because you're coming up to me after a show. Like I'm standing next to a stage and you're We're like, We're strangers, right? Yes, <laughs> I don't know your name or you just told it to me and you're telling me, hey, like these deep, deep things that sometimes I don't tell anyone else I'm sharing with you. Powerful and sometimes uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. As well, thanks for, for going there for us, Caleb. <laughs> I will. Every time and time again.
<laughs> Caleb Rainey, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Caleb Rainey, the Negro artist, his spoken word album Heart Notes drops tomorrow. That's Heart Notes Live drops tomorrow, featuring the music of Wave Cage. And he's launching the Soft Stuff Tour this week. You can find out all about it on his website, thenegroartist.com. Remember, remember to listen to music. Even though I can never remember the lyrics to songs, I am always reminded of how the words bounce through my ears, down my bones and into my being. This is true love. Because I accept them for who they are and do not try to tame them. Remember, to solve more puzzles, to remind myself that pieces can still come together to make magnificent art. And remember to collect more playing cards, to remind myself that life's a deck. And there's a queen of hearts out there somewhere. You just have to pray for a good shuffle. And remember, Remember to play with kids because they have the key to life since they haven't lost theirs yet. It's not selfishness, it's not security, it's not systems, it's simple. Love easy. That's just a little bit of Love Easy from the album Heart Notes Live. It drops tomorrow featuring the music of Wave Cage and, of course, the poetry of Caleb Rainey, the Negro Artist. His website is thenegroartist.com. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.